famous there than here. Philip Roth? You've never heard of Philip Roth? I've heard of him. What? By Columbus. Philip Roth is. Oh, yeah. I have some. I knew I had a book on my shelf by him. I just haven't read it. Portnoy's <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so has no one here read Portnoy's Complaint? Never Portnoy's Complaint is like the most famous Jewish novel of the last 50 years. Um, and it, it was completely scandalous when it came out. Um, sufficiently scandalous that people like um, Brandeis' parents told their kids they had to go elsewhere when Philip Roth was taught at Brandeis. Um, when uh, it was... It was uh, um, Roth was an object of intense vituperation. He now has the Library of America volume or a couple of Library of America volumes, and he's a perennial, um, perennially mentioned person for the Nobel Prize. He's now in his mid-70s. The Human Stain, the movie with Anthony Hopkins, no, rings no bells. Um, well, you should read Philip Roth. But so why was he scandalous? Um, if you read Portnoy's Complaint, Portnoy's Complaint was basically, it was, it was a novel about um, uh, a certain kind of Newark in the 30s and 40s Jewish adolescent male experience, which was not, um, which was real experience. And um, he was extremely explicit about that experience. Um, yeah, that's Goodbye Columbus as well, but Goodbye Columbus is completely tame compared to Portnoy's Complaint. Portnoy's Complaint is, look, say Portnoy's Complaint to your parents and they will go, <gasps> um, they really will, or they'll say it's a great book, or they'll say it's hilarious, and I don't know what all the fuss was about. But if you read it, you'll see what all the fuss is about. You really will. Um, it, it could be, parts of it could be on 4chan slash B. Um, parts of it could be. Um, is your hand up? No. Okay. Yes. Okay. I was going to ask another book, but I was going to call this because I read that in American Pastoral. In American Pastoral? Yeah. Oh, you read American Pastoral? Yeah. Yeah. So did you like American Pastoral? Um, I liked Goodbye Columbus. Really? Okay. Um, yeah, Goodbye Columbus is the very tame version of Portnoy's Complaint. Um, and... Um, it, but at any rate, so Roth was um, was accused by very important people of being a self-hating Jew and being disgusting in every way and being terrible to his parents for writing these autobiographical novels, which are in fact not autobiographical novels. And um, I actually gave a talk on Goodbye Columbus to the uh, National Women's Committee when they were called that. Um, and someone came up to me and I sa and said, I knew the girl that that was about, and what he did to her was disgusting. Um, which is that he wrote um, a story about um, a high school relationship and freshman year of college relationship between the narrator and his girlfriend, and it didn't end happily. Um, it's actually, Goodbye Columbus is actually a pretty amazing um, piece, and um, usually very badly misread. Um, was your hand up? No. Okay. Uh, so, uh, Paradise Lost. Um, how far are we? Book four, right? Mm -hmm. So what are you thinking? It's really hard to get into it. Like the first book, then after that, it was easier to read sometimes. You have to, partly it's getting used to Milton's language. Um, partly. And that's one reason that I had us look at some Milton even as we were going um, through stuff earlier. Once you get used to his language, um, it's, it's, it makes sense. 
um, but it's not Shakespearean, and um, you have to get used to it the way you the way you have to get used to Shakespeare's language as well. Dana. Um, for the essay, can you only do it online? You mean, are you only allowed to do? Um, it's actually start. You can do Inferno too. So. Um, yeah, it's post-classical, so it's Dante or Milton. Um, yeah? Oh, I was just saying, like, I had a really, really hard time with books two and three, but for some reason, book four, I found, like, a lot more entertaining and a lot easier to understand. Well, book four um, takes place on Earth. Yeah, maybe. And that helps a lot. Mm -hmm. um, what you'll see at the beginning of book seven is he says, now I'm returning to Earth for good. Um, he, that is the narrative Paradise Lost, says... Um, now I'm returned to my native element, um, no longer in hell, no longer in heaven, but back in my native element, back on earth. Um, and uh, that's where, he, it's book four where humanity comes in, um, and where people who um, act like human beings um, come in. We've been talking about the relation throughout, from the Iliad onward, the relation of humans to the gods. Um, and it's really in book four that what is at the very start of um, books one, uh, the Iliad book one, um, the Odyssey book one, the Aeneid book one, that really only kind of enters Paradise Lost by the time you get to book four. Um, and if the human is where the greatest interest is, and in some sense it must be, it has to be, it makes sense that book four is where you would get into it. Different people get into it in different places. Um, but it, but all the places that Paradise Lost initially starts seeming interesting to you, they're all they're all re they're reasons for all of that. Simon, I'm not sure why, but it seems a lot denser than anything else we've read so far. Um, it is. It probably isn't denser. Certainly not denser than Virgil. Mm -hmm. um, it seems denser because you're actually getting the poetry now. This is the. This is really the first thing we're reading, where the poetry is clicking on all cylinders because you're reading it in your own language. Um, Dante is actually much more compressed than Milton, mm -hmm. um, and in translation. Dante can sometimes seem skimpy rather than compressed. Um, but if you read Dante in Italian, you get um, compression that makes Milton look like um, he's just really relaxed about saying things and just, you know, whatever. Um, Dante is extremely compressed, but Virgil is very compressed also. Um, Homer, not quite as much. But, um, but this is a way of saying that... Um, seeing and getting a sense of um, what the really great epics are like to speakers um, of the language that they're written in. Um, Milton is the only great epic that we're reading um, in English, and it's the greatest English epic. Um, way early. Yeah, I oh, know, because I'm flight. I okay. just wanted to be okay. Well, that was nice. Okay, sorry. Um, Have a good break. <laughs> um, so, the... Well, I guess what I want to ask is um, comparing it to, for, leave Dante out of it for a minute, although Dante will come back, but comparing it to um, Virgil and Homer, um, what is Milton getting out of them? What is he doing to them? What is he, how is he um, uh, coming up with a new riff on what Virgil and Homer had done before? 
we can just just compare scenes, compare moments, compare things that you recognize from your reading of Virgil or Homer. Well, he reuses the calling of the muses. Okay, so there's there's the invocation to the muse, and who's Milton's muse? Uh, the Holy Spirit. Yeah, pretty much the Holy Spirit. Um, what he says at the beginning of Book One is. Um, uh, Sing, heavenly muse, of all these things, that on the secret top of Oreb, or of Sinai, didst inspire that shepherd who first taught the chosen seed in the beginning how the heavens and earth rose out of chaos. So what shepherd is that who first taught the chosen seed in the beginning how heavens and earth rose out of chaos? Lord? Christ. No, it's not. No, 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 no. No, who first taught the chosen... Who's the chosen seed? Moses. Moses isn't the chosen seed. Abraham? Seed. What did... did okay, seed in, seed in the King James... Actually, Milton is using the Geneva Bible, but we don't have to go into that here. It's close enough to the King James um, that, that we can just talk about um, standard biblical language. Um, in standard English biblical language, this is a direct translation, um, this part from the uh, Greek and Hebrew. Um, you, well, remember the curse that is denounced on, um, on Adam, which is that the serpent shall bruise thy, thy heel and thou shalt bruise his head. And he shall bruise the heel of thy seed even unto the thousandth generation. Something like that. Um, seed there means those who come from you, your progeny. Um, think a little bit of dandelions. Um, that Only a little bit. Um, because um, seed here actually means um, for the Bible. And for Milton means semen. Um, but think of dandelions. It's seed gets scattered. Um, the, the reason that the word seed is being used is partly for the implication, or partly for the um, connotation of um, seed being scattered into the world, um, a field, um, like dandelion seed um, being blown and just floating everywhere. Um, so, so the seed of a person is um, all their descendants. That's what it means biblically, and that's what Milton is meaning by it. So the chosen seed would be whom? Sorry? Yeah, yeah, the chosen people. It's a way of talking about the chosen people. Um, the chosen seed are the descendants of... No, of Israel. That's why they're called the children of Israel. Who is Israel? Jacob. Jacob, yes. So um, the descendants of Abraham include whom? Israel. And who else? Why don't we just say the descendants of Abraham? Sorry? Yeah, 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 but yeah. it's Ishmael. Ishmael, yes. The descendants of Abraham also include the tribe of Ishmael, um, as well as of Isaac. The descendants of Isaac also include the descendants of Esau, as well as the descendants of Jacob. The, the children of Israel are the people who descend directly from Jacob, whose name is turned into, it changed to Israel when? Can we right. talk about this? When he, the what? Divine angel, God. The man. The man. When he wrestles with a man all night. Right. Not an angel, except according to Hosea a thousand years later, but a man um, whom he then tells his brother he thought might have been God, but no mention of angel. 
Um, so, um, it's then he says, from now on, your name isn't Jacob, but it's Israel because you have struggled with God, which is what Israel means. Um, so the children of Israel, the chosen people, are those who descend from Abraham and also from Isaac and also from Jacob. Descend from Abraham through Isaac and descend from Isaac through Jacob. Those are the chosen people. So it's Israel's seed, Jacob's seed, um, that are the chosen people. So the shepherd who first taught the children of Israel how in the beginning, in the beginning how the heavens and earth rose out of chaos, um, what is being quoted there in the beginning? Genesis, first words of Genesis, Bereshit, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. earth. Good. See, it all comes back. All that stuff you thought you'd never need, you need it. Um, It all comes back. So the shepherd who taught the children of Israel how, who gave the children of Israel the book of Genesis was Moses. So, the muse that he is now calling upon is the same muse who inspired Moses, and that would be God. Good. On top of Sinai. Yes, on top of Sinai. So, he is basically not very humbly asking for inspiration from the same divine source as gave Moses the Torah. That's what he is asking for. So he says, sing heavenly muse. What heavenly muse? The one that on the secret top of Oreb or of Sinai didst inspire that shepherd who first taught the chosen seed in the beginning how the heavens and earth rose out of chaos. Um, That's his muse. he will, a few lines later, call it, um, Thou, O Spirit, that dost prefer before all temples the upright heart and pure instruct me. For thou knowest, thou from the first was present, and with mighty wings outspread, dove-like sets brooding, remember we talked about the word brood? With mighty wings outspread, dove-like sets brooding, on the vast abyss and mates it pregnant. Um, an image that most people don't pay attention to as much as they should, but the dove which is brooding over the vast abyss is therefore female, um, but it also makes the abyss pregnant, which means that it's therefore male. Um, Milton gets this out of a Kabbalistic tradition. The idea that, um, that the spirit of God is both male and female is hermaphrodite. Um, and can both impregnate and brood. Um, so it's a kind of shocking image which Milton sneaks in there, um, um, assuming rightly that his first readers will, won't really notice it um, and will just think it's a metaphor that, that um, makes sense without their examining it much. So shocking because? <clears throat> because it makes God both male and female simultaneously. Um, and this is not a common view of God in the 17th century. Um, And shocking because he gets so much out of the Kabbalah, um, which he had read, but which I shouldn't tell you much about, um, because you're too young. Um, 
Okay, so the the invocation to the muse. Uh, what else is like Virgil and or Homer? Much of this should have seemed familiar to you or recognizable to you from reading Virgil and Homer. You could say that uh, that Satan's trip to Earth is kind of analogous to to Aeneas and, and the Aeneid. Absolutely, you could say more. Um, that Satan is, is cast out from heaven from his first home, just as Aeneas <coughs> is forced to leave Troy. Okay, so the defeat of Satan is like the defeat the defeat of Satan and his followers, like the defeat of the Trojans. Go on. And um, after the meeting of the in in hell, um, they decide to try to extend their rule by um, swaying mankind toward their side, which is kind of similar to creating a new homeland. Yeah, they they decide that they're going to go to a new world, that they know of this new world where they, they've heard a rumor of it, but they've never been, and they will make the attempt to get to that new world. Um, and then Satan does make the attempt, and it requires a considerable amount of heroism. Satan going through chaos, what does that remind you of? Odysseus. Odysseus where? Um... Uh, I, I'm not sure among the dead, although uh, I'm willing to, to, to hear that, but I mean, to, for you to make the point, but um, it's remember that how difficult the trip through chaos is. Why is it so difficult? There's no landmarks. There's no landmarks, and what's, what's, the, what's the ruling feature of chaos? Keeps changing. Yeah, that he get, that, that, it's, that it's like being um, he, Milton doesn't describe it this way, but it's like being in a hurricane. Um, that is, every move Satan makes, he gets blown or buffeted somewhere else. Sometimes he drops um, 2,000 fathoms at a time. Sometimes he's borne upwards. Um, and he might never have made it, um, except for sheer luck. If, he hadn't, if, if he'd been caught by a different current, he might be falling still. Um, so how is that like Odysseus? Yeah, it's like the first scene of Odysseus when Odysseus is completely at sea um, and is, is the first time we see him um, is, is when um, he's only got a little piece of wood left and eventually um, is through the intervention of the gods coming <coughs> to the shore of the Phaeacians. Yeah. Um, I was going to say Satan is like sort of like Odysseus in the sense that they're both tricksters except Satan is doing it for evil and Odysseus is really doing it for the ultimate good. Okay, good. Yeah, they're both tricksters. Um, they both, you could say, hide in an animal um, in order to 
um, the better to sneak around a place that they're not supposed to enter. Um, that would make then the Garden of Eden rather like Troy and Satan like Odysseus. That is, it, you're not going to find, and of course you won't find one-to-one um, uh, consistency in the parallels, just as between Virgil and Homer there wasn't one-to-one consistency, that in the first half of Virgil, Aeneas is just like Odysseus, um, and in the second half, he's just like the Greeks, you could say, besieging Troy, um, and yet, at the same time, Odysseus is evil in the Aeneid. Sinon is evil. The Greeks are evil. Um, Aeneas is both repeating what they're doing and compensating for what they've done. So you can compare Satan um, in various ways to the great heroes we've already seen, to Odysseus, to Aeneas. Um, who else? Someone's hand was up a minute ago. No? What other comparisons? Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, like, a lot of the battle scenes, too, uh-huh. come up again, but they're translated into spiritual Yeah. Questions. So how far, how far are you? It sounds like you're beyond book four. Yeah. <gasps> Cheater. No, that's right. Um, what you're going to see is the, the phrase in book one is in dubious, battles, in dubious battle upon the plains of heaven. Um, we will see that dubious battle um, recounted for us by Raphael to Adam, and Eve hears it, hears it too. Um, so, so just as, although we, you haven't gotten to this yet, just as in um, uh, both Virgil and Homer, both Odysseus and... Um, and Aeneas tell their story after the fact, you will get a retrospective description of the story um, in Paradise Lost as well. Um, yeah? I was going to say, maybe you can also say that um, Satan has um, maybe some of Achilles' anger. Yeah, say more. Um, I mean, he was dissed, I guess. Yeah, he was dissed by God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so he's um, trying to... Um, Okay. Um, well, so so he feels dissed by God, like as Achilles feels dissed by Agamemnon. Um, a little bit he has Agamemnon's anger also. That is, Agamemnon <laughs> is very angry at um, what he is told um, is demanded of him by Apollo. Um, but you know, again, the part of the point about the anger in um, the Iliad is that you can. Um, kind of do a chart of the of the stages and varieties of anger and how they can morph into each other um, by looking at all the angry people in the Iliad, especially all the angry Achaeans in the Iliad. Um, and Achilles is at the center of that, but um, aspects of Achilles can be found in Agamemnon. Aspects of Achilles can be found in Menelaus. Aspects of Achilles can be found in um, all the angry characters, even in Hector. Um, Achilles is the center, and all these other figures are um, figures who show versions of him. 
um, in the same way you might be able to say um, Satan is in largely based on Achilles um, as far as his anger goes, but, but there are things that are taken from Agamemnon, things that are taken from Menelaus, and so on. But that's because they already are aspects of Achilles in the Iliad. Um, why not be aspects of Satan in Paradise Lost? So in particular, um, what you could see is that the psychology of anger that Milton is thinking through, and he is thinking it through, and the psychology of anger that Homer is thinking through, are characterized by the surprising but um, central feature of anger, which is um, sometimes called spite. Um, that is that the way you express anger um, and this is, this is a general and surprising feature about human anger. It's, um, there are emotions that are very natural to us, and so we don't think about them um, or why they have the, the um, content and the structure that they do. Um, but one um, aspect of anger, which should be surprising if you think about it, is that people feel angry because they feel they've, um, they, they're not getting what they should be getting. But anger takes the form of not cutting your losses, not saying, well, I was treated badly, um, and, um, but now I still have some stuff, so I'm going to make sure to keep that. But anger takes the form of um, wishing to express how angry you are by refusing what is given to you anyhow. Um, the standard feature of anger of, of vengeful anger, of spitefulness, is that uh, of sulking, it, um, which is the standard thing to say about Achilles. I think it's, it's a, a biased thing to say about Achilles, and I don't like the language of sulking but uh, when applied to Achilles. But it has this valuable thing that, that when people sulk, what they're saying, what they're doing is making themselves intentionally feel worse. That is, you treated me badly. And so now what I'm going to do is not even take the half a loaf you offered me, but rather starve. Um, how many Jewish mothers does it take to screw in a light bulb? None. None. Just, just sit here in the dark. Yeah, don't mind me. I'll just sit here in the dark. Um, I wouldn't want you to put yourself out. Um, so that idea of sulking, um, which is... You're only giving me half a loaf? Screw you in your half a loaf. I would rather starve. Um, is an expression of anger that comes at, comes at the cost of the angry person. And usually, or, or, or when anger gets interesting, interesting if you're feeling angry. Um, interesting as a literary representation also, is when you punish the person who's made you angry. You've all been in this situation. You punish the person, you try to make them feel bad by putting so much effort into it that you actually feel worse. The quantity of how much worse you feel is more than the quantity of how much worse you can make them feel. Do you know what I'm talking about, that kind of sulking? Where you know you really want this person to call you up and um, they're not calling you up and they finally do call you up and you hang up on them? even though you could have talked to them for like two minutes and it all would have been fine, um, and then you feel terrible, but maybe you made them feel a little bit bad. 
And we make this very strange um, trade-off when it comes to anger, where we are willing to accept a whole lot of bad fe- of, of feeling bad in ourselves in order to make the other person feel a little bit bad. And our thinking is they should feel bad when they see how bad we are making ourselves feel because of what they've done to us. Um, the fact that I'm willing to feel so bad about your behavior, the fact that I'm not willing to make it up, but I'm willing to really you know, miss, the, miss Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows even though you had IMAX tickets because you said that snooty thing to me. Um, that fact should tell you how, how, how much you've upset me. And so there's a kind of expressive part of anger where you try to convey a little bit of bad feeling to the other person through demonstrating <clears throat> honestly how bad you were going to make yourself feel. And that's, that in everyday life, that's called sulking. Um, in every, you know, it's, it's like um, um, standing out in the cold all night long so they feel a little bit bad the next day that you stood out in the cold all night long. They had a much better time of it. They were warm and watching TV. You were out in the cold all night long. But you made them feel a little bit bad. Great. Um, rationally, it's better to be warm and sound asleep um, while the TV is still on than standing out in the cold. But somehow you feel like you've won if you make them feel crappy that you stood out all night. Um, so it's economically, it's a very bizarre thing to do, which means, of course, that it's related to the gift, to the idea of gift giving, um, which I won't pursue now. But notice that that's what Satan does, that Satan is willing to take on infinitely greater punishment in order to spoil things for God a little bit. Um, And that is how he's like Achilles. That is, he is willing to absorb, and it's, it's as angry people feel, it's heroic on his part, that he's willing to absorb punishment much greater than the punishment he deals out in order to deal out a little punishment to God. Yeah. Um, just related to that, um, I was thinking about the scene in the Iliad where like Odysseus and a few other people like go to Achilles and you know are offering him the gifts and trying to get him to, to come back. And I think it's almost like the same scene, I think, in book four when um, Satan talks to the angel. Not uh-huh. like the same exactly, but it's sort of like he sort of like runs into the, the angels and they try and stop him, but at that point there's there's no stopping him. He's going to do. He's going to do what he's going to do. Yeah, there's also the golden scales in heaven at the end of book four, which you should have remembered from the Iliad. Um, Zeus sets up uh, golden scales twice um, as to whether a fight should t- should occur or not. Um, so yeah, but it's the same thing. There's a meeting. There's a there's a moment of possibility. There's an earlier moment of possibility where Satan is considering: um, Is he right to be so angry at God? Um, Ah, wherefore, he deserved no such return from me. Um, and he thinks about it for a long time, and finally he says, no, I got a, a man, a, a fallen angel's got to do what a fallen angel's got to do. Um, and so um, he continues it. Uh, someone's hand was up? Your hand was up? No, okay. Um, okay, outside of Satan, what, what other comparisons could you make? There's one completely obvious one, right? King of the Gods, Zeus and God. Good. (laughs) 
Yeah, Zeus, God. Um, and with the rebel, with the other angels, to some extent playing the role of the subsidiary gods. That is, um, the rebel angels you know from the catalog in book two. Who, who are they among the sons of Eve? Or did you just kind of race through that? Um, so what we find out in book two is that in heaven, their names are expunged. Um, but nor had they yet among the sons of Eve got themselves new names. However, Milton says, I'll tell you what they were called later among the sons of Eve. And then he starts naming all the fallen angels. And where are those names from? Max? They're from different mythologies, like Egyptian mythology. Egyptian mythology, Greek, Greek mythology, mythology, Roman mythology, Etruscan mythology. Yeah. So it turns out that a lot of the Greek gods are, um, and Roman gods, and Egyptian and Etruscan gods, um, are fallen angels. Um, so then the idea would be, the again, the, the, the connection that Milton is making, the integration of the Homeric with and Virgilian with the biblical that he's doing in his epic is, yeah, God is the king of the gods. He is more or less in the position of Jove or Jupiter or Zeus. And the so-called other gods are actually angels who are sometimes called gods. Um, this is, I'll just say this, this is not generally what you would say in an introductory class in Paradise Lost, but you have the background for it. Um, it's um, striking how often the term gods is used in Paradise Lost to refer to the angels. Um, and in fact, what Satan, when he tempts Eve in her dream, um, what she says, um, she recounts her dream um, the next day. So you remember that Satan is um, squat like a toad um, uh, and um, causing a dream, um, causing Eve to have a dream as she lies asleep in her bower next to Adam. Um, so the next day she tells her dream. Um, and what she says in her dream is that a beautiful angel came to her as she was um, as she was uh, near the tree of knowledge and the angel said, do you remember Emily? Um, what the angel said? Because you, you read ahead. Oh, what, uh, in Eve's dream. Sorry? Yeah, yeah. When the dream that he made Eve have, she tells Adam that dream in book five. I just yeah. The tree and, and he said it's great. Yeah, it's like nothing happened to him. And yeah, he said, oh man, now I see why this tree is forbidden. Um, God knows that whoever eats of it um, will realize, will be able to see through him and see through his arbitrary power. Um, but also what the angel, it's actually Satan um, who's causing this dream, but what this beautiful angel says to her is if you were to eat of the fruit you could go up to heaven and see what life the gods live there, and such live thou. That is, you could live the life of a god in heaven. Now, Milton is will frequently use gods as a synonym, gods with a small g and the plural, as a synonym for angels. Um, so will his characters. Um, but um, Milton himself, in his own voice, will frequently do it. Um, it's a reasonable thing to do. 
and it has biblical warrant. Um, for example, in Genesis, um, do people remember the story of Sarah, Sarai, Sarai at the time, um, being told that she's going to have a child? Yes. And how, who tells her? Yeah, so, so three angels come and, um, and Abraham feeds them, in, gives them the law of hospitality. Um, and then they thank him and then they say um, she's going to have a child and she laughs. Um, and it uh, turns out she shouldn't have done that, but it's okay in the end um, because she does have a child. Um, namely, yeah. Um, when they're introduced, the verse that introduces them is Abraham, and God appeared unto Abraham is the first sentence. And God appeared unto Abraham, and Abraham looked up, and behold, three men had come, um, had appeared on the road. And um, they said, we were tired, and he gave them um, honey and milk and sat with them. Um, so Milton is very interested, like a lot of people, that, that, that it begins, and God appeared unto Abraham, and he looked up, and he saw these three men. And again, the standard um, understanding of this is those three men are angels. Um, but somehow, they're introduced as the appearance of God to Abraham. The same thing with Jacob, who wrestles a man whom he later identifies as God, and later commentaries say, okay, when God appears but it's a man, what's actually appearing is an angel. Um, that's, the, that's the standard attempt to understand this frequent, somewhat frequent biblical event where we are told that God appears and then who actually appears as a man. And so, oh, the man is a representative of God, that man is an angel in reality. But they're not called angels. Um, they're called men, but they're introduced as the appearance of God. Emily. But I feel like that's how God acts in Paradise Lost as well, where he has his son do a lot of his, he kind of sits there and yeah. gives out the work. Right, exactly. So he'll send angels to give messages to Adam and yeah. Eve, just as you sent his messengers. Right, exactly. Um, including a dream, by the way. Yeah, Monica. Even in Dante, though, um, towards the very end of Paradiso, he equates like the angels with very, very closely with God. Like, yeah. He was. They were given. They were as pure, and um, it was more so than any of the other ones we've read by Dante too. Yeah, yeah. Um, the thing about again a little bit in Milton, um, but much more in Dante, God is impersonal. Um, that is the God capital G, um, monotheistic God, in neither Dante or, um, well, I'm, I'm not going to say this about Milton yet, but certainly not in Dante, um, is that figure, we, we've had a hundred cantos of, of completely colorful and fascinating human beings. Some you may have been more fascinated by than others. But still, um, every canto has five or six different people in it whom we've never met before, who are um, individualized and, and realized in very explicit ways, all the way <coughs> up to the highest heaven, 
all the way up to Eve and Mary and Rachel and Abraham and all the figures um, in the in the Imperium. And then there's God. And um, God, to some extent, like Satan in Paradise in um, Inferno, um, they are both strikingly um, uncharacterized. That is, we see Satan and we see him munching, but we don't. He doesn't talk in the Inferno. He's practically the only figure who doesn't talk and who would have nothing to say. Um, it's it's kind of amazing that he has nothing to say um, in Inferno, but he is at the, he is beyond the human limit, or is he, he is at the limit of um, what a what a creature with a soul can be, and so he doesn't tell his story. He had a story. He rebelled against God. That's the same story that Milton is telling, but he doesn't tell his story. And then God himself, God the Father in Paradiso, also doesn't talk. Um, he, he is rather than acting. He is, he is an ising rather than an acting. As um, that shepherd who first taught the chosen seed in the beginning how heavens and earth rose out of chaos was informed as to who was sending him. Um, do people know the story of the burning bush? He says, who shall I say sent me? Um, and do you know God's response, the Lord's response? Is this? So you should. You're, you read, it, read it through footnotes. Um, <laughs> but you should. Genesis and Exodus are short. Thanksgiving is long. Um, yeah, what he what he says is famous famous um, sentence in Hebrew, Echya Asher Echya, um, and that gets translated in, in the Geneva and in the um, King James Bible as "I am that am." Um, it's probably slightly better translated as "I will be that will be," um, although tenses in Hebrew are very strange. But it's but the but Milton um, accepted Milton knew Hebrew, but he accepted the uh, Geneva translation. I am that am, not I am that I am, which is how it's sometimes uh, translated. But I am that am. Um, if they ask you, um, tell them I am sent you. Um, and um, the way to understand that, I think. I don't want to tell you how to understand what God is saying, but you know. Nevertheless, the way to understand that is God is essentially saying, um, "You want to know who sent you? I am the being, not that is. Everything is, but I am the being that ams, which is much more, you could say, central to being itself. Um, the reason you are." The reason she is is because I am aming. The universe exists because I am that that am. I am. And, you, and am there isn't an active verb, but it's essentially an active verb. So God ams, and everything else is and therefore acts 
but everything that is and acts is and acts as a feature of God <coughs> aming. And so that's what he tells Moses. I am that am. And to am is something very different from to speak. When God speaks, so this is another part of the Bible that you won't have read, but when God speaks, what we get is the retelling of the beginning of Genesis. I mentioned this before, but I repeat it for you now because it's important to Milton, that you get at the beginning of the Gospel of John. So there are four Gospels. Three of them are people who actually saw Jesus and saw the stuff that he was doing. And then there's the Gospel of John, where John is a, is a philosopher who is retelling the Gospel stories um, and doing it from an almost platonic point of view. And what he says, famous opening of the Gospel of John is, in the beginning, what does that remind you of? Genesis. Genesis, yep. In the beginning was the word. What word? What's the first thing that ever happened in the universe? No? Let there be light. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth, and the earth was without form and void. And God moved over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. So the first act of creation is speech. The first thing God does is to speak. And what he, said, what he speaks is light into being. Let there be light. But, isn't that a... No, he first makes... Then. This is first set the scene, then make the chaos, then comes the days of the light and dark. So yeah, the days come later. That's day four. But light itself is the first thing he creates. So let there be light, and there was light. Um, and then he creates the firmament, and he divides the light from the light, and then he creates matter and all that. But the first thing that he creates explicitly is light, um, which is an amazing thing. Longinus, um, who... who um, listed the passages he thought were most sublime in Homer, also said that's the most sublime moment in the Bible, God saying, let there be light. He says this in the first century A.D. Um, so John takes that in the beginning. God said, let there be light. So John says, ah, so in the beginning was the word. It's not that light was the first thing ever created. It's that God's word, light, is the first thing God created. He created the word light. But that word itself created light. So what John is thinking, as he puts it, it's in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's the beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And what John seems to be thinking through there is the idea that God who ams should do something in creating. That's not the same thing as amming. That's doing something. But John is trying to solve that problem by saying, okay, so the first thing is the word, light. And the word is with God. It's the first created thing. This, at least, you could say is Milton's understanding of John. The word is with God. There's God, he's alone, and then he creates the word, light. Fiat looks, let there be light. Just one sec. Let there be light. And the word is with God. 
but it's with God, not as something separate, because then God would have created something that was not God, but as something which ams rather than which is brought into being. And so the word was God. So for John, the really important thing is God created the word which was uncreated, not a created thing because it was God himself, because what God speaks is God in himself and with himself is, is what God is. But then that second thing, which was God, with God and then was God, and which creates light. So God says the word light, the word creates light, and the word both is and isn't God because the word can do things in the world and isn't just amming. The word is doing and not just amming. So for John, the word is the son of God, who both is, who is God. Hence, the beginning of the Trinity. The Son of God is God. The Son is the Word of God. The idea of the Son of God is that God's speech is his creation, is his offspring, is his Son. And when God speaks, he speaks God into being as his own Son. So Milton puts together... Remember I told you Milton does not believe in the divinity of Christ as being a co-equal God. But Milton puts these things together, and if in Dante God doesn't speak, in Milton God speaks through the Son. The Son is the image of God, the perfect image, Son in whom I see my perfect image. And because the Bible seems to use the word God to apply to angels, Milton will take from that the idea that you can see the Son of God, who is also called God, as the head of the angels, as the first of the angels, the first of all created beings. So what, so what Milton does with extraordinarily, extraordinary elegance is to... Um, connect the Greek and Roman stories of the gods through the idea that, yeah, they are properly called gods even in the true biblical story, but they don't, there's only one real God, and even the Son of God isn't the real God. The real God is God the Father. But these other angels can be called gods, and the Greeks called them gods, and the Romans called them gods, and they also, the Greeks and Romans, knew there was a king of the gods. And for Milton, it's, they didn't realize how, how um, authoritative a king the king of the gods was. But Jove, Zeus, <coughs> Jupiter, Jupiter Ammon, to use the Egyptian um, connection, um, all of those um, are are misunderstandings or distortions of the truth, which is God the Father. He's the real king of the gods. So remember the end of book one, where Mulciber, who's the architect of Pandemonium, we've looked at this the first week of class, Mulciber, who's the architect of Pandemonium, um, 
how he fell from heaven, <coughs> um, the sons of men fabled um, that um, Jove threw him sheer o'er the crystal battlements, and he fell a summer's day from dawn he fell from dawn to dewy eve a summer's day and dropped from the zenith like a falling star onto Lemnos the Aegean isle and then Milton says thus they relate erring for he with his rebellious rout fell long before so what he says is there's a tradition there's a mythology I'm actually going to tell you something interesting I learned yesterday but there's a tradition there's a mythology which is how Hephaestus or Mulciber or Vulcan, three names for the same, the same fallen angel, fell from heaven and was, was injured and suffered pain through that fall. And the mythology is based on something real, namely the fall of the rebel angels. But the Greek version of that story or the Roman version of the story um, put it forward in time and put it for different reasons which had to do with Juno or Hera and Hephaestus um, trying to distract Zeus and so on so they got the story more or less right but they um, gave the wrong reasons to some extent they distorted the personnel and they said it in the wrong time but this is always true they're always traditions of, you know, this is what biblical archaeology does. You look at biblical stories and then you try to think, but what real thing could have happened that might then get remembered in folklore as this kind of story? So the thing I was going to tell you is, is I learned yesterday that the catalog of ships um, in book two of the Iliad, I think this is only discovered fairly recently, um, the catalog of ships is not um, Homer, although it is... Um, adjusted by Homer, but it's it's probably the the oldest part of the Iliad, and Homer um, took it and put it in the Iliad. But there's a long sort of list, memorized list of all the people and all the ships and all the leaders who'd gone to the Trojan War. And then when Homer composed the Iliad, he um, inserted that list into the Iliad because that that's what was history in this time where there was no writing was people memorized this endless list of the people in the Trojan War. And what's really interesting about it is that um, figures who are said to come from cities or people are said to come from cities that no one knew they came from, except the catalog of ships said that. By the time um, that written records occur, those cities don't exist, or the people who are supposed to be from those cities now are living in other cities. But the catalog of ships turns out to be a very good spur to archaeology. It's a memorized version of where people came from as understood around 1300 BCE. And inserted by Homer, it only, it only continues to exist because Homer put it in his poem. But he, it was received tradition on Homer's part, and it turns out to be fairly reliable tradition because it says things that we didn't know, but then archaeologists go and investigate and it turns out that it's true. There's really usable information in the catalog of ships. So that's the interesting thing I learned yesterday. Emily, I said I'd get back to you. I was just, I mean, so God's word is part of God, and yet it's separate from, from yeah. him. And yeah. it's the word that creates. Right. So 
He spoke then to create angels. Yes. He spoke then to create man. Well, it's it can be that the word then um, takes on a life of its own, does what God wants. But yeah, it's essentially the word becomes <coughs> God's command. And does this also then kind of emancipate God from the consequences of those Okay, so that becomes a really important question, and it's the question of free will, yeah. you could ask, you could say. Um, so, you know, we could, we could settle the hash of free will in five minutes, right? Since we did line one of Paradise Lost in five minutes last time. Um, okay, we do, we do have to talk, talk some about Satan, and we can, we can put that off till after Thanksgiving. But um, God in book three, so one of the things in, in, that the rebel angels do in book two is um, some of them go off, do you remember um, that they, they, they go to entertain themselves in hell? Terrible, terrible place. Constant and endless pain. Um, pain that never ends. Horrible pain. Hell in Milton is as bad as hell anywhere. However, it's part of the nobility of the fallen angels that they spend almost no time complaining about pain. Um, that is, they're stoic about the constant pain that they're in. They're not, oh no, pain, 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 it's terrible, I can't stand it. It's, of course there's pain everywhere. Um, but their courage is to, um, to achieve indifference to it. And there are various ways that they do that. So some go and they sing songs. Um, and do you remember what songs they sing? Sing of the, the battle between the angels and God. Yeah, and how terrible it is that might and force should overcome virtue. So they sing songs. Here again, you can say this is, this is a Homeric and Virgilian theme, especially a Homeric theme, which is that you have a representation of the songs of the, of the story being sung within the story that is telling that story, that is singing that story. So in the same way that Odysseus hears all the singers sing all the stories about Odysseus, in the same way the rebel angels sing the story of their own defeat. And that story for them is tragic, that it's a story of the victory of brute force over free virtue. Um, and then the narrator says their song was partial, that is, they only gave one point of view, but the harmony held hell wrapped. What could it else when heavenly spirits sing? So this amazing anti-Dantesque, you could say, vision here. Because in Dante, where does singing start? Purgatory. In purgatory. There's no singing in hell. But in Milton, there is singing in hell. And remember Milton, Milton's obsession with Orpheus, who's going to come back um, in, in the invocation of Book 7, with Orpheus, who sang in hell and made hell grant what love did seek. So in Milton's hell, there is singing. And what the rebel angels sing is the song of their own defeat by force rather than by virtue. But if some sing songs, others, Milton says, or the narrator says, 
um, go off to, to a hill apart. They retire to a hill where they have philosophical discussions because song charms the sense, but philosophy charms the soul. So philosophy is like singing, only more so. That's a platonic idea. That is that Ion, what does he do? He sings. But what does Socrates do? He thinks. And ultimately, thinking and singing are similar, but thinking is deeper. So here, these rebel angels go, and they sit on a hill, retired, and they have philosophical discussions. And what they discuss is free will and whether it is possible if God has foreknowledge absolute. So the phrases, and there they talked of free will, fixed fate, foreknowledge absolute, and they couldn't come to any conclusions, wandering, he says, in mazy errors lost. The word error or er is a very interesting word to follow through Paradise Lost. So they're trying to figure out how can foreknowledge and free will be reconciled. If you have foreknowledge, that means fate is fixed. You can only know the future if the future is already set. But how can there be free will if the future is already set? And they can't figure it out. Then in book three, God comes. And he says, I created everyone free. Freely they stood who stood and fell who fell. Those who didn't rebel didn't do it out of their own freedom. Those who did, did out of their own freedom. Not free, what proof could they have given me of love? If they weren't free, they couldn't have shown that they love me since only what they needs must do would appear, not what they would. So free will, without free will, there's no love. Without free will, love is impossible. Dante says something similar. Without free will, love is meaningless. So free will for Milton, and this is a heresy for a Protestant poet, free will for Milton is central, and, it's, and both the rebel angels and God himself argue in support of freedom. So then the question is, when God creates, he creates Adam and Eve, as you'll see. They're going to uh, describe their own creation. They already have in book four. Um, Eve describes um, how she was created. Adam describes his dream. Um, but all rational beings, that is, beings man and above, humanity and up through the angels, up through the Son of God, all rational beings have free will in Milton. Um, how that can be is something we'll talk about after Thanksgiving. So have a good holiday and um, see you a week from today. Uh, uh -huh. Just about the um, a yeah, sure, yeah, I am that I am. Uh -huh. I am, I am, am. Um, I am that I am. am that I'm right. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but there's a there's an